0: Pray with me. Father, how great is your name in all the earth. And during this time, we ask that you would quiet the distractions that we may have, calm the anxieties that we may have. May we hear a word from you. And may we be so captivated by you that all else that pulls and grabs at us would pale in comparison. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus made a habit out of astonishing people. And he still does. All of the gospel accounts at different points remark that Jesus marveled others. They left them in wonder. Who is this man, this Jesus? He would perform a miracle. He would teach a certain way. He would be a certain way. And it would elicit astonishment on those around him. The first time this happens in Matthew is following the Sermon of Sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. And from Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus is teaching what his kingdom looks like. And when he finishes, in chapter 7, verse 28, it tells us that, quote, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So can you imagine then what it would have been like when the disciples got together and started trying to piece together all these things Jesus is doing? Trying to make sense of their astonishment. Trying to make sense of who this Jesus of Nazareth really is. Perhaps when they were seated at the table, Peter began the discussion. And he asked them, who do y'all think Jesus is? By the way, there's some non-canonical texts that suggest that the disciples were familiar with southern vernacular. So they said things like y'all, or at least that's how I'd like to think of it. So (laughs) Peter said, who do y'all think Jesus is? And they all stop eating and they look up. And they think maybe Andrew chimed in first. He feels obligated to since Peter's his brother. Well, after what he just taught us, and in the way that he taught us, I think he's Moses. Because think about it. He just taught us all these things up on a mountain. Does that ring any bells? Exodus, Mount Sinai. And he taught in a way by prefacing many of his teachings, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Well, when he's talking about you have heard that it was said, who do you think he's talking about? You have heard that it was said by Moses, but now I say to you. Well, and as the cherry on top, Joseph had to take him and Mary to Egypt to flee from Herod. So then they have to come from Egypt to Israel. I think he's Moses. Yeah, but there's more to him, interrupts James. Don't y'all remember walking through the grain fields and the Pharisees caught us plucking and eating some of the grain on the Sabbath? And don't y'all remember what Jesus said to them? He gave them the what for, called them out on what they were supposedly the experts on and he told them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to do, nor for those who were with him. So I think he's David. Yeah, but there's more to him, interrupts John. And how y'all not thinking about this? Remember what Malachi prophesied, very end of his letter. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes that's what makes all these miracles and teachings make sense plus elijah didn't die he was taken up into heaven before he died so he's come back he's elijah well i'll see your elijah and raise you a jeremiah because i think there's more to him interrupts and interrupts philip andrew's talk about jesus as moses got me thinking remember about the middle of jeremiah he tells us about the new covenant he said, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt. So all that talk about you have heard that it was said, but now I say to you, that sounds like new covenant language to me. Not to mention, Jeremiah was opposed by the religious establishment of his day. and Jesus doesn't seem to be making best friends with the Pharisees. I think he's Jeremiah. Well, have y'all ever made the connection that there are 12 of us, interrupts Bartholomew? Because I think there's more to him. Who was the first person to do anything with 12 people? Remember Genesis? Jacob? Caused his 12 sons together? Gave them a blessing? Well, not too long ago, Jesus gathered us together, the 12 of us, blessed us and sent us out. I think he's Jacob? Now, this may be a bit out there, but go with me, because I think there's more to him, interrupts Simon, the other Simon. Apparently, Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. He may just be feeling guilty, but it's catching on with others, too. They both are preaching a very similar message. They're both prophetic in their nature. People thought John the Baptist was Elijah Return. John over here thinks uh, Jesus actually is Elijah I think Jesus is John the Baptist. Yeah, well, I doubt that's the case, interrupts Thomas. (laughs) What do you think, Peter? And Peter, taking everything in that's been said, responds, I don't know. I'm still thinking. Still putting some things together, but what you all have said is intriguing. So some time passes from this conversation, and then another conversation happens while Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi. And that brings us to our text this morning. Will you stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Jesus asks them, the, asks them the question that they've most certainly been discussing. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And of course by that he means who do people think that I am? And they all start blurting out answers. Ones they've definitely discussed before except they couch them in the some say language. Because that way if some people think it's wrong, I won't, I won't be wrong. So yeah, I don't know, some say Jesus. Uh, I don't know, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Or at least one of, prof- one of those prophets. And the thing is, they're all a little bit right. Matthew intentionally paints Jesus with shades of Old Testament characters throughout his gospel. So is Jesus John the Baptist? Yes, kind of, but there's more to him. Is he Elijah? Yes, but there's more to him. Is he Jeremiah? Yes, but there's more to him. But then the poignant question, which has a double pronoun in Greek to add emphasis. Jesus says, but you, who do you say that I am? And now it's time for Peter to answer. The climax and turning point of Matthew you are the Christ. In Greek, the anointed one. In Hebrew, the Messiah. The Jewish hope and the world's hope incarnate. The fulfillment of God's promise to David in Second Samuel that I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever the one who would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's why the very first sentence of Matthew, chapter one, verse one, says, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But not only the Christ, if such a sentence could be said, but there's even more to him. The son of the living God. There Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi, the town in earlier Jewish times as the site of a Baal cultic center, and later in Roman times as the site of the Greek god Pan, all dead gods. And there in that shadow, Peter proclaims Jesus as the son of the living God, Yahweh, the one who, as Donald Hagner in his commentary on Matthew states, is more than just a human figure, but is someone who is uniquely a manifestation of God, the very agent of God who somehow participates in God's being. And not only that, if such a statement can be said, there's more to him. This Christ, this Messiah, This son of the living God, Jesus, is going to build his church, his people, his messianic community, his temple. Because keep in mind, the underlying image in this is the Jerusalem temple in Jewish tradition thought to be built on a rock in the center of the world. That's why the Muslim shrine there now is called the Dome of the Rock. That's why in this verse you see, on this rock I will build my church consisting of all those who give allegiance to him as God's anointed king and death itself the gates of Hades in Greek another dead god will not prevail against it that is an enormous statement and we're so used to hearing it and diluting it oh yeah Jesus and the church that its magnitude is often lost on us. It doesn't astonish us, but it should. Because think about for the disciples. This is the figure, the hope for the future which which had been told for generations and generations and generations and generations. God has come back to rescue Israel and the world from the particular of Israel to the universal of the world. God's redemptive plan since Abraham to King David to exile, this is the hope of it all in the flesh standing before them. Now, it's easy to miss the forest for the trees here if the only thing we focus on in this passage is, yeah, but what about that Peter stuff and him being a rock? Are Catholics interpreting this right or do Protestants interpret this right? And that's so often how this passage gets discussed. But the thing is, this passage is a crescendo that has been building for generations. This specific melody of the scriptural symphony, that of the Messiah's return, has appeared in disguise in the historical wisdom and prophetic writings of Israel and is now being played at fortissimo, fortissimo, powerful and loud in all its glory. And to get sidetracked on, well, does this legitimize the papacy is to miss the beauty and power of the symphony that's being played because we think one of the instruments looks a bit funny. Do I think this passage legitimizes the papacy? Clearly not. Oh, I am highly confused preaching in a Baptist church this morning. Does it give a certain primacy to Peter as a sort of leader representative among the disciples? Yes, scripture seems to agree with that. Protestant sensibilities shouldn't be threatened or offended at that. If we look at Acts, who's the first person to preach after Pentecost? That's not accident, that's not random, it's Peter. Who's the one to whom it's revealed first about the Gentile inclusion? A major narrative of scripture, Peter. In the gospels, look who Jesus interacts with with the most, Paul references Peter more than once, implying that he had a leadership role. But to affirm that, that perhaps Peter did have a leadership role among the disciples, whether the disciples wanted it or not, is a long chasm away from saying, and I also think he was the first pope. Thus instituting the papacy and thereby giving supreme authority to the Roman Catholic Church. Long way away from those two statements. But to focus on that in general is to get sidetracked, so let's not get sidetracked. Let's not miss the enormity of this claim. Because here in Houston, Texas, and around the world, 2015, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of ancient Israel's hope and the world's hope, in the midst of all our dead gods, Plutus, wealth, Eros, sex, Ares, violence, kratos, power, is the son of the living God, Yahweh. And on the basis of who he is, he is building his church around those who identify and give allegiance to all Jesus is. And Jesus has entrusted it with the responsibility of conforming conforming its actions and its being around who Jesus is and leading others to do the same. Now, this is admittedly oversimplifying. That's the general core of binding and loosing. Whatever you bind on earth, you'll be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, you'll be loose in heaven. It was a rabbinic term, and it had to do in its primary Jewish meaning of allowing and disallowing certain conduct, conduct based on interpretations of the Torah. So, for Peter's context... And later, it's the same authority given to all of the disciples in Matthew chapter 18, and thus for all of the church. It concerns number one, our own conformity to Jesus, and number two, ingratiating others into the messianic community, the church. And keeping one another accountable to the conformity to Christ and his identity. But none of that matters. None of the things that we usually focus on in this matters. Keys of the kingdom of heaven. Binding and loosing. Rock. None of that matters. Nor takes on its proper profundity if we don't fully appreciate the majesty of Jesus. Do we fully appreciate that holy calling to which we've been called to as a church? And do we appreciate who exactly did the calling? Because you may be around a table one day, similar to the disciples, and someone may bring it up to you Or you may be wondering yourself. Who exactly is this Jesus? And there are a lot of answers floating around out there. Don't shortchange them. Don't shortchange yourself. My grandmother used to tell my dad that when it came to dates with girls, that he had champagne ideas and Coca-Cola money. (laughs) But in similar fashion don't take the majesty of Jesus a champagne of sorts and reduce him to some Coca-Cola bullet points. You should astonish people. You, me, us we should be astonished. Because unlike the disciples at least at that time they're going to get some clarity later on We have a clearer picture, which gives us the opportunity to say, who is Jesus? He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the agent by which all things were created. He is the purpose for which all things were created. He is that by which all things hold together. He is whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is through whom God is reconciling all things. He is the one who makes peace by his blood on the cross. He is the Messiah, the one foretold by the prophets. He is the new Jacob who gathers together his people. He is the new Moses who came to deliver his people. He is the new Joshua who brings his people to God's rest. He is the new David who is king over his people. He is the new prophet who calls his people back when they've gotten out of line. He is the suffering servant, the one foretold by Isaiah who was wounded for our transgressions and by whose stripes we will be healed. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the bread of life, the sustenance of all who would come to him he is the light of the world whose truth whose love and whose power Pierces through the darkness. He is the door, the way of salvation. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his people. He is the resurrection, the one who went before us and who guarantees his people's resurrection. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the vine, the source of abundant life. He is the new Adam who, though the old Adam's trespasses led to condemnation by his one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. He is humility and incarnate, one who was equal with God, yet humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, something still to be grasped. He is the great high priest, one who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is the great redeemer, one who has bought us back from the curse of the law that we may receive adoptions as sons and daughters of God. He is the great deliverer who banishes ungodliness. He is the great equalizer in whom we are all one. Male, female, young, old, rich, poor, healthy, ill. He is the final sacrifice whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us. He is the head of the church. He is the church's cornerstone. He is the church's bridegroom who hearkens to his church. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. He is the author of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. He is the victor over death. He's the victor over sin. He's the victor over all powers and principalities. He's the king of all nations. He's the bright and morning star. He's the alpha and the omega he's the beginning and the end he is our Lord, he is our teacher he is our savior, he is our friend and he is building his church his body, his kingdom, his bride the people of God, a royal priesthood a holy people, the temple of the spirit in God, indwelled by the spirit of God, birthing new creations to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light he is building all of that on who he is and though sin and evil and death may try, they will never prevail because all of it was extinguished of their power by the death of jesus and the resurrection of jesus so repent turn love him worship him follow him learn from him live like him and lead others to do the same because that's who jesus is and isn't it astonishing Father, we don't ever want to lose the magnitude of who you are and your Son and your Spirit. Don't let us dilute it. Don't let us minimize it. We want to be so overwhelmed by you that everything else pales in comparison. Keep us astonished. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.